Well, this morning we move to uh, Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 33 through 37. And then we're also going to jump up ahead to Matthew chapter 23 and look at a few verses there that are um, connected to our passage. So we'll read those this morning as well. But we'll start in Matthew chapter 5. That is page number 1,503 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, continuing his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oaths, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now jump ahead to Matthew 23. And here we'll look at verses 16 through 22. Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. This is the word of the Lord. What if, or what would you do if you knew there was a way that you could lie if you wanted to, and no one, not even God, would be able to accuse you of doing wrong? That's an interesting situation, right? Being able to lie and having no one be able to accuse us of doing wrong? Where even if the person you lied to, if they found out that you lied, they would have to acknowledge that you had done nothing wrong. The classic example of this would be two children playing on the playground. One child says to the other one, Hey, it's my turn to play with that toy. And the other child says, I'll let you play with it in five minutes, I promise. Well, five minutes goes by, and the first child comes up to the other child, and he says, hey, five minutes have gone by. It's my turn to play with that toy. And the other child says, no, I'm not going to let you play with it. And then the first child says, but you promised. And the other child said, well, I had my fingers crossed. 
as if somehow crossing our fingers makes us innocent of lying. As we'll see this morning, this is exactly what the religious leaders in Israel were doing. Not only were they still guilty of lying, though, they were also guilty of blasphemy as well. And Jesus invites us into a different kind of life. He invites us into a life where we can trust him and be truthful, knowing that the outcome will be okay. He invites us into a life where we simply say yes and no, and we are believed. So here's how we're going to approach, approach this passage this morning. I have three questions that we're going to ask, and then we are going to answer. Uh, the first one is, what is the Old Testament law that Jesus is referencing in this passage? The second question is, how were the religious leaders in Israel interpreting this law? And then finally, how does Jesus' teaching fulfill that law? So, what is the Old Testament law that Jesus is referencing here? So two weeks ago, it was very clear that we were dealing with the sixth commandment forbidding murder. Because Jesus teaches us that even the anger inside our hearts makes us guilty of murder. Last week, it was very clear we were dealing with the seventh commandment forbidding adultery, as Jesus teaches us that even the lust inside our heart makes us guilty of adultery. And even when he, <clears throat> excuse me, even when he incorporates divorce, he does so under the seventh commandment. But today's passage isn't quite as clear. Jesus is not quoting a specific one of the Ten Commandments. And so we have to do a little bit of digging to uncover what Jesus is referring to here. Uh, His words are this. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. And so on the surface, it seems like Jesus is dealing with some Old Testament law that has to do with making oaths. And that's actually true. That's what he's dealing with here. In the Old Testament, an oath or a vow uh, was when someone would actually swear to God that they were going to do something that they said that they were going to do. They would take an oath or a vow in order to motivate themselves because if you swear to God that you're going to do something, you're going to have to deal with God if you don't. And they would take an oath or a vow so that the other person was more likely to believe them. If you tell your wife that you're going to be home for dinner tonight, but you have a track record of always saying that you're going to be home for dinner and not actually making it home for dinner, uh, one thing you might want to do is say, you know what, honey, tonight, I promise. I promise I'm going to make it home for dinner. And by making that promise, you're actually holding yourself more accountable in this instance to be home in time for dinner. But also, even though your track record of making it home for dinner is terrible, you allow your wife in this instance to be able to believe you more readily because you've made a promise. You're, you're holding yourself accountable. So by making the promise, we can uh, increase our ability of, to be trusted and increase the other person's ability to believe us. So used properly, oaths are a good thing. Leviticus 19.12 says this, Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You're accountable to God if you swear falsely because you've profaned his name, God says. Now notice, God does not forbid swearing. God allowed swearing an oath or a vow in his name because he knows this is a sinful world and people lie. 
And so he allowed oath-taking as a way to promote truthfulness and believability. And we need that, right? Because in a society without truthfulness and believability, everything falls apart. Every time you go to the store and use your credit card or write a check, the merchant is trusting your bank, your credit card company, you. Your credit card company is trusting you to be able to pay what you say you're going to pay. Every time you order something on Amazon, you're trusting Amazon, you're trusting their employees, you're trusting the UPS company. You're trusting your neighbors not to steal the package as it's sitting on your front porch. So a society that can't trust each other is a society that will totally and completely crumble. So God allows oaths and vows to promote that kind of society, but he forbids swearing falsely. That's because in a fallen world, oaths and vows actually promote truthfulness and believability. But if we swear falsely, we end up ruining the whole thing. The whole system falls apart because no one can believe anyone anymore. And you can't have an economy and a business world if no one keeps their side of the contract. And you also can't have deep and lasting and meaningful relationships, period, if we cannot trust what comes out of one another's mouths. Which is why God is very clear about the penalty for swearing falsely. In Deuteronomy, Moses writes this. He says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand of it, it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. And so these are likely the laws that Jesus is summarizing in the Sermon on the Mount when he says that you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. And everyone in Jesus' audience at the time, everyone who was reading Matthew's letter when he first wrote it, everyone would have understood and known about these laws and immediately called this to mind as soon as Jesus uh, gives this summary here. But Jesus isn't just taking us back to an obscure law in the Old Testament about oath-taking. He's actually taking us back to the third commandment. So with oaths and vows in mind, let me read to you the third commandment. Uh, God says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And so if you took an oath or a vow in the name of the Lord and then failed to fulfill it, you weren't just lying. You were breaking the third commandment. You were taking God's name in vain, and God says he will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. In fact, the punishment for breaking the third commandment is death. In uh, Leviticus uh, 24:16, God says this, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. Oh, so God allowed oaths and vows because he knows our sinfulness, he knows we are prone to lying, and he wanted a kingdom built on truthfulness and believability. And so he tells his people, go ahead and take oaths and vows, But he also says through Moses, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Make sure you take your oaths in my name so you know it's blasphemy if you fail to keep it. 
God wanted everyone in Israel to know they could always believe someone if they swore an oath or a vow in his name. If someone took an oath or a vow in Israel, they could be trusted, if for no other reason than if they broke the vow, they would be breaking the third commandment, and they would have to answer to God alone, and God will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. But, as you might expect, uh, the religious leaders in Israel had figured out a way to wiggle out of this one, too. Uh, Here's our next question this morning. How were the religious leaders in Israel interpreting this law? So in the business world, um, you always want to be the one who writes the contract. Uh, You always want to be the one who knows the laws upside down, inside out and backwards, uh, so you can write it in such a way that favors you. Uh, That's why when we get presented with a contract, it's always wise to find an attorney who can read over that contract and make sure that there's no loopholes or exclusions in the contract. Um, One time I went to Missouri to visit my parents. They live in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, I rented a car when I was there. And I chose not to take the rental company's uh, car insurance that they offered me because I thought to myself, my insurance company covers my rental car when I'm driving it. Well, I got rear-ended while I was there in Missouri, and I came to discover that my insurance company only covers my rental car if my own personal car that they're insuring happens to be in a body shop or a repair facility at the time of the accident. But because my car was in perfect working condition all the way back in Sacramento, parked in an airport, apparently my insurance was not covering the accident. Thankfully, I was rear-ended and it wasn't my fault, but it was very shocking to me to find out that there was this loophole or this exclusion to the contract that I didn't know about. So how did the religious leaders find a loophole or an exclusion around this Old Testament teaching about oaths and vows? Well, Jesus tells us. He goes on to say, But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So we're going to get back to what Jesus says here about not taking an oath at all. Uh, But for this point, I, I want to focus on heaven and earth and Jerusalem and our heads. So apparently what the religious leaders were doing is uh, they had come up with a system that allowed someone to swear by other things like heaven and earth and their head, and by doing so, they were essentially crossing their fingers behind their back. The, the logic would go like this. But you took an oath saying that you would do this thing that you said that you were going to do. Well, yes, I, I know I took an oath, but... But I took the oath by heaven, and an oath by heaven is not a binding oath, and so I'm sorry that I did not fulfill my vow. Uh, If you would have read in the tradition uh, about oaths, you would have seen the exclusion in the contract uh, for taking an oath by heaven, since heaven is just the sky, and the sky is really just nothing at all. So, sorry about that. So with that in mind, let's jump to Matthew 23 and read those verses again. Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, uh, is bound by that oath. You fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? 
You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it, and anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. So they were actually teaching that you could swear by the temple, and that that oath wasn't binding. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, well, then, then you had to keep that oath. They were also teaching that you could swear by the altar, and that's okay, that that wasn't binding. But if you happened to swear by the sacrifice on the altar, well then, you actually had to keep the oath then. Sounds crazy, right? And so Jesus comes along and he says, you think that you're getting out of blasphemy because you're swearing by the temple, but you're not. If you swear by the temple, you're swearing by the one who makes the temple sacred. If you swear by the altar, then you're also swearing by everything on the altar and in the name of the one who you are sacrificing to on that altar. If you swear by heaven, don't forget heaven's also God's throne. If you swear by earth, don't forget the earth is his footstool. If you swear by your head, remember you can't make a hair black or white on your head. Your head actually belongs to God. He's the one who makes hairs black, and he's the one who makes hairs white. So no matter what you swear by, you are swearing in the name of God because this is his creation and everything belongs to him. Now it's easy for us to say, oh, those silly Pharisees, look at them trying to figure out how to, get a, to, to lie and get away with it. They're trying to get around blasphemy and walking right into it as, as they're trying to get around all oh, those legalistic, silly Pharisees. But you know what? At least they respected God's name enough to try not to take his name in vain. They may have been looking for a legalistic way around blasphemy, but at least they were concerned with blasphemy. Whereas our culture, we have OMG emojis that we can use for texting. I, my children told me they hear other children at Ripley Christian saying, oh my God, and taking his name in vain. We, we have so lowered the reverence and the awe for God's name that we don't, we don't even concern ourselves with whether we're taking his name in vain or not. One of my favorite uh, guys on YouTube that I watch, he, he'll go to people to share the gospel and he'll ask them, have you ever taken God's name in vain? And, and they'll say no. And then he'll give them examples of taking God's name in vain. They're like, oh yeah, I definitely do. And then his question is, would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? And everybody says, no, of course not. Then why would you use God's name as a cuss word? We also swear on our mother's graves. We cross our heart, hope to die, and stab a thousand needles in our eye. Remember that one? We even swear on our money when we th say things like, you want to bet? I'll bet you. And in every one of these cases where we are either calling down a curse on ourselves or swearing on our money or on our mother's graves, 
we are potentially blaspheming the name of God if we say that in vain. Because our life is his, our money is his, our mother's grave is his. We might not say, I swear to God, but we'll say, I swear or I promise. And anytime we fail to follow through on whatever we swear on or whatever we promise, Jesus is saying that that we're taking God's name in vain when we do that. Jesus says anything other than a simple yes or no is not only lying, it's blasphemy if we don't follow through. We can't swear or promise at all without taking God's name because everything is his. And so Jesus says to fulfill the law. He says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now I have to admit, and this is probably obvious to everyone in this room at this point, at first it seems like Jesus here is contradicting the teaching of the Old Testament that allowed for oaths. It seems like he's getting rid of the old law and setting down a new one. Rather than swear any oaths, he's saying, just always tell the truth. And you won't need to take oaths. Be the kind of person who, when you say yes or no, people just believe you. Because you have integrity and character and and your word is your bond. Be the kind of person who doesn't need a contract. A handshake will do. That is what Jesus is saying here. And based on this passage, some Christians have interpreted it to mean that we as Christians ought not to ever take an oath. Certain traditions uh, say that you can't even join the military because to join the military, you have to get sworn in. And because Jesus says that Christians can't take oaths, they don't even join the military. Certain Christian traditions, when they're in a court of law, they, they will not say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. They will just simply affirm that they will tell the truth because they want to avoid taking an oath. And while there's something very cut and dry about that, that's actually legalistic too. Jesus isn't setting down a new law here. He's fulfilling the Old Testament law. The truth is we still live in a fallen world where people who don't know us will expect us to lie, not because they know we're a liar, but because they know people are liars. And in a case like that, it might be the most loving thing to do, to take an oath, in order to give someone assurance that they need, that we're telling the truth. And even Jesus lets himself be put under oath. Later in Matthew, during the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he's being questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest, we read this. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. Notice Jesus is silent 
until Caiaphas puts him under oath. And then he answers. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the Romans, says this, God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. See, God, uh, Paul had never gone and visited the Roman church. And he's writing to them and he's telling them, I remember you in my prayers constantly. And as a way of letting them know that, that he's truthful in a statement like that. He says, God is my witness. How many times do we tell somebody, oh, I'm going to pray for you? And then we never do. And so Paul wants them to know that I'm really praying for you. And then even God himself takes an oath. God puts himself under the curse of the covenant in Genesis chapter 15 when he promises Abraham that he's going to give him a son. In Hebrews 6, we, we read about that. There the writer writes this. He says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So Jesus lets himself be put under oath. Paul and God take oaths. You and I have taken oaths. If you are married, you took wedding vows before God, promising to remain married and to be faithful till death do you part, in sickness and in health, in the good times and the bad. If you've ever served this church as an officer of the church, you took ordination vows, where you promised to honor this church and God and the position that he had called you to. Last week, everyone here stood up and made vows promising to help my family raise our daughter Hope to know the Lord. So what are we to make of this? Is Jesus' teaching here contradicting the Old Testament and what we read about Jesus, Paul, and God in the New Testament? Here's how we should understand this, I believe. First, let's not forget what Jesus is trying to undo in relation to the religious leaders. They were taking frivolous oaths, thinking that they were avoiding blasphemy, and Jesus wants them to know that not only are they guilty of lying, but they are guilty of blasphemy. And they're watering down the meaning and the significance of the oaths. And if you can't trust someone who takes an oath, who can you trust? The other thing to remember is that oaths are only necessary because we live in a fallen world. God allowed oaths in the Old Testament, not because oaths are necessarily a good thing, but because people are liars. Oaths are a way of holding the oath-taker accountable and granting confidence to the one receiving the oath. And that's why Paul and God took oaths. Not because they can't be believed or even because they needed to take an oath, but because we are weak. And what God is promising us is so absolutely wonderful that it's hard to believe. See, all of us know that we're guilty of this, right? Of lying and, and taking rash oaths. And the reality that God is so kind and so gracious and so full of love and compassion that he would come and suffer 
in the person of Jesus Christ to forgive us of all of our lies. And then he grants us his perfect righteousness and his Holy Spirit simply by faith. This is, a, this is news that is too good to be true. And because God wants us in our weakness to believe this truth, he takes an oath to help us. This is why we take oaths on solemn occasions like weddings and baptisms and ordinations. We, we do it because we know we lie. We know we fail to do the things that we promise we're going to do. And so we take vows to hold ourselves accountable and to give our spouses and our children and each other the confidence that even though we're weak sinners, we will do everything in our power, God helping us to keep that vow. So vows and oaths taken rightly promote truth and integrity in a fallen world. So what Jesus is saying here is, look, if you're taking vows so you can lie on purpose and avoid the consequences of that vow, first of all, you're not avoiding the consequences and don't even bother. Don't even bother. Just say yes or no. First of all, it's still blasphemy because whatever you swear on belongs to God and you will be accountable to him no matter what. And then he says, wouldn't you rather, though, be the kind of person who doesn't even need to take an oath to be believed? Oaths and vows were meant to promote truthfulness and believability, and Jesus is fulfilling that purpose by calling us to be the kind of person who doesn't need to take an oath or a vow to be believed. And I believe everyone in this room who has the Holy Spirit alive inside you longs to be that kind of person. I like to think of myself as a pretty, pretty truthful person. But uh, if I say to my kids, hey, this Saturday, you know, we're, we're going to do this or that or the other. And the first thing they say to me is, oh, dad, do you promise? Well, obviously, I've proven myself as somebody who cannot be trusted by my own children when I say I'm going to do something. <laughs> but by virtue of the fact that when I say that, the first thing they say is, Dad, do you promise? Dad, I need some kind of assurance from you because you're such a liar. I can't believe you. It's, it's so convicting. How many times... Have we retold the story and exaggerated the details to make ourselves seem funnier and more witty than we really are? How many times do we keep back the truth because we think we know better than someone else? We, we think we're protecting them from knowing something that they, you know, would find difficult. But in reality, we're protecting ourselves from how hard it would be on us if they knew that information. How many times have we made plans with someone to go out on Friday night, but then something better came along, and so we, we try to come up with a reason that's not really lying so that we can go and do the new thing that came up? How often do we hide our sin from someone who has the right to know because we fear the consequences? How often do we pretend to know something that we don't really know because we don't want to look foolish? 
And because we're all like this, we still need oaths to keep us accountable to God and to promote truthfulness. But Jesus is teaching us here that if we use oaths to prop up our lies and to protect us from the consequences, we haven't just lied, we've blasphemed the name of the living God. And so we ought to be the kind of person who strives to simply let our yes be yes and our no be no. And you know what? This is the kind of person that Jesus is making us all into. As merciful peacemakers who hunger and thirst for righteousness, everyone here longs to have integrity and to be a truthful person that other people can count on. We long to be the kind of person who, when we say something, no one has to say, do you promise? But try as we might, we fail, even if we don't get divorced or commit physical adultery. As we learned last week, all of us have broken our marriage vows in our heart, which means we've also lied and blasphemed the name of God. Later, Jesus will say, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So what do we do? Friends, the Sermon on the Mount is so beautiful because it's meant to crush us under the law so Jesus is our only hope. So we look to him moment by moment for the grace and the forgiveness he offers. And because this particular command And Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, is one we're wrestling with constantly because we're constantly saying things or not saying things. It's this perfect command that takes us to the love and the mercy of Jesus. Because we have to depend on him not only for forgiveness and grace of the things that we've just said, but we need to depend on him for grace and mercy that we might be the kind of person that we long to be and that he is making us into. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, it's his truthfulness. It's the fact that Jesus never told a lie. It's the fact that Jesus never walked away from a situation regretting something that he had said or something that he didn't say. He was perfectly truthful all the time, even in those gray moments where we're conflicted by two competing things and and we don't even know what's the right thing to do here or what's the right thing to say. We can trust that Jesus knew exactly the right thing to say in that moment. And when he was faced with that same dilemma, he was perfect. And so in those moments, we can rest in him, rest in his perfection, rest in his grace, rest in his mercy, rest in the fact that we receive perfect truthfulness that we desperately need by faith and by faith alone. And he was actually crucified for being a liar and a blasphemer. Back in Matthew 26 that we looked at earlier, When Caiaphas, the high priest, put Jesus under oath and Jesus answered his question, I want to read that again, but I want to go a little farther. It says, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. 
And then under oath, he goes on to say this. But I say to you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, a reference to the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, which we talked about a few weeks ago, right? The divine Son of Man. He's calling himself God here. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And yet he could not have been more true to himself and to all of us. He is the divine Son of Man. He is God in the flesh. He told the complete truth under oath for their good. If they would only have believed him, if they would have only let the Old Testament reality of oaths inform what Jesus was doing here, they could have recognized him as the Son of Man come to set up his kingdom. And the call is for all of us this morning to look at Jesus, to believe his words, that he is who he said he is, that he will save us to the uttermost, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us he will. Because we desperately need a Savior who can and has saved us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning again, convicted by your law and drawn to your grace and mercy offered to us freely in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the one who has saved us. We cannot save ourselves. Thank you that he is the one who grants full and complete forgiveness that we desperately need. And thank you for your spirit who comes and lives inside us and causes us to long to be the kind of person you say you're making us into who can be trusted with a simple yes and no. We pray this in his name. Amen.